Good morning. Man, my name's uh, Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here. Super, uh, always excited to get to preach, and uh, and just privileged to do so. Uh, Chris is finishing up, I think, a last day of a much-needed vacation, uh, and so I, that's why I get the chance to share with you guys today. We're going to be in Mark uh, 14. Um, I feel like Doc set me up just perfectly last week, headed in, uh, talking about the Lord's Supper today, and so we're just going to pick up right where he left off last week in Mark 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would, would like to borrow one from us, if you just kind of hold your hand up, our ushers will come and and uh, happily give you one if you just forgot yours or you don't have one, that sort of thing. Uh, just keep your hand up and they'll find you. And we say this every week, but we really mean it. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would be happy for you just to keep this one and make it your own uh, if you'd like a copy of God's Word. Uh, I believe in that Bible it should be page 850 is, is where we are. Um, <clears throat> a second song that the band just sang. What, Nathan, what's the name of that song? Is he still in here? Might be in the hallway. What is it? Christ is risen. That that's like the sermon. Like that. I don't know if you guys were paying attention to that song, but like that song's like the sermon. Like like, I mean, Nathan knows what I'm preaching about, uh, so he he prepared it intentionally. But it's amazing somehow how you, you know with our intentions and planning in a service how the Holy Spirit will guide all of us to just kind of completely make everything together and encompass it. And so that those those words are just amazing and are essentially what we're talking about today as we talk about the Lord's Supper. So I, I kind of got weepy-eyed and everything just singing that. It was amazing. Um, let's go ahead and go to Mark 14 and, uh, and read. And we're going to begin some of what we studied last week just for context's sake. So let's begin at verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, he, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It's one of the twelve one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And this is really our focus today. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray in the next few minutes, as we sit under the authority of your word that you wrote, that you would intercede in this moment and that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and to our souls and our emotions and every part of us the things that we need to hear. Pray that we would hear from you clearly. Father, I pray that you would um, use me powerfully, not because I've got any power in and of myself, but Holy Spirit, would you take this gift of, of teaching and preaching that you've given me, and would you use it to build up your body? And would you help us in these next few moments? And would you bring all the praise and glory and honor to Jesus and lift him very high and help us to see how much of a treasure he is and how amazing he is and how much we need him. And then, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper at the end of this sermon, would you help us to be nourished in faith upon the blood and the body of Jesus that this meal represents? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so a couple years ago, can I get the lights up? I don't need it this dim. I want to see faces. Uh, great. A um, couple years, I didn't mean that sarcastically. <laughs> I really want to see you, sorry. A uh, couple years ago, um, we were having this discussion in staff meeting. Uh, I think it was right at two years ago. And we were, we were discussing how can we do how can we do a better job as a church of creating space to respond to how God might be moving in our hearts each week? Um, see, we, we fundamentally believe something about this time together and also about the time that we spend together in, in micro churches and in Bible studies and in fuel and in kids ministry and in micro groups and, and really any time the church gathers together for the purpose of lifting high uh, the name of God, we believe uh, what Jesus says um, in Matthew when he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we, we believe, just to put that really clearly, we believe right now in this place that God is here with us. The, the very God who created all things ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. Like God didn't need Legos. He made the Legos and then made whatever he wanted to make out of the Legos, right? You can't do that. Only he can do that. And that God who created everything by just the power of, of speaking, he created everything that we see and know and feel by just speaking. He is here in this room right now with us. You say, well, Ben, I thought God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He is. But when the church gathers, he's here with us in a special and unique way to bless us. He's here for our good. He's here in power. He's here in a, in a cloud with us. That's, that's amazing. And we show up as the church every single week believing that God is with us and believing that he is going to move and to change hearts and to draw people to himself and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to help people see the reality of the things with which we're talking about. And, and the goodness of Jesus. And so as the Bible says um, in, uh, in the Old Testament, it says, 
that the word of Lord will go out and it will not return void. And, and it's because of that conviction as a staff, as your pastors believing that God is here with us and that he intends to move and to be powerful in these moments and to change us, that we wanted to do a better job of trying to create space for us to re- respond each week. And so we respond in worship, and then we, we sit under the authority of the word, and, and we said, what would it look like for us to begin taking uh, the Lord's Supper every single week together as another way of trying to invite people into this moment of reflection and response where we say, God, what are you doing in my heart right now? What are you doing in my mind right now? And then, and then to remember the gospel. And so we intend for this time at the end of the service every week to be a time of response. And we would like for it to be even more of a time of response than it is currently. Like we take communion and we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we, we would love to see this time be even more a time of prayer. And prayer even together, even more of a time of, of repentance, even more of a time of, of fam- like, like we take communion individually, yes, but also as a, as a community. It's communion, us, the family of God, with God. We, we would love to see families. I love it when, when I'm serving, because I usually serve in second, and, and a family kind of comes up, and they don't just take it individually. They kind of, mom, dad, kid, and they're all kind of there, and then, and then we're reminding them. This represents Jesus' body broken for you. This represents Jesus' blood shed for you. We would love to see even more of that. We, we want this time at the conclusion of every service to be this amazing moment where we say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me right now? And what do I need to do as a result of everything I just sang about and heard in that sermon? We desperately need to respond. Sometimes we don't know how to respond. That's fine too. But we're, we're asking God, what, what, are you, what are you speaking to me? What do I need to do? Do I need to repent of something? Do I need to apologize to somebody? Do I need to believe something that I had forgotten that I kind of believe, but you're reminding me again, I need to believe it afresh and anew. That's, that's what we want this time to be. And so that's how 24 got on the track of taking communion every single week rather than just quite often, which is what we did previously. I don't know if it'll continue every single week from here to eternity, because there's no rule in the Bible that says you got to do it this often or this often or this often. It just says, do it often and remember me. But right now, that's our pattern. And so today, what I want to do is I want to I wanna take just a bit, uh, Doc already started us. I'm going to repeat some of the things he said, because they're so important. And then I want to expand a little bit more into the meaning of this commemorative meal that we participate in every week. And I want us just to ask, what does the Lord's Supper mean? What's it, what's it about? And then how do we take it rightly according to the Bible? Uh, so that, that's where we're going today. Um, and uh, the first thing is, I, a big part of the sermon is I just want to talk about the, the past, uh, the future, and the present aspects of this. So past, present, future, right? Um, so... It, Just read it with me again, verses 22 and 23. And it says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
So remember the, the context of this meal, as we talked about last week, was the, the Passover. And I, I don't want to over-repeat everything that Doc said, but I want to touch on it. Re- remember that throughout the Old Testament, God had given his people uh, festivals and feasts uh, and holidays as a way of remembering him. And so kind of like we do today, we have Christmas and the meaning of Christmas for us is, as believers is we remember when Jesus came into the world, when, when the Son of God came and condescended and was born and put on human flesh, and he came here so that he could save us. That's what we remember at Christmas. And we give gifts because uh, he was given gifts. Uh, and we, we celebrate Easter every, every year. And so we remember this time when, when Jesus was and Holy Week was crucified and died for our sins, and then he proved that he wasn't just a man or a good teacher or just a prophet, but he, he rose again with power from the dead, the Bible says, and so we're reminded that we worship God, and so we celebrate that every year. Easter is this important thing, and, and depending on your tradition of Christianity, there are lots of holidays that, that the church celebrates. And that's exactly like what happened in the Old Testament, is that God had given his people these feasts and the, this, this calendar of reminders so that they were constantly drawn back into the story that he was telling and constantly reminded of who God was and what he had done for them. And in the Old Testament, there were actually seven Jewish feasts that, they, that the people of Israel celebrated. We're not going to go through them, but, but the most important was Passover. And on Passover, they remembered that they had been enslaved in Egypt. They, they were without hope and had no, no chance of rescuing themselves. And, and God uh, did these 10 plagues to lift up his mighty name. And the 10th plague was uh, the plague of the, the death of the firstborn or Passover. And in this moment, he instituted this feast. And so they would kill an unblemished lamb. They would roast the meat. And then they would take a hyssop, uh, which is a branch, as a paintbrush, and they would dip it in the lamb's blood, and they would put it over the doorposts of their house so that as God on this 10th plague, as God or via a death angel passed over the camp that night, everybody, every household that was covered in the blood would be passed over, and judgment would not befall that house. But any house that was not covered by the blood, judgment would befall that house. And there was kind of this idea in the Old Testament that the the firstborn of every house was kind of like the representative for that house. So for all these houses that were uncovered in Egypt, their firstborn died as a punishment for their sins, the sins of the family. But, but in the case of the Israelites who, who put the blood over their doorpost, they, their firstborn son did not have to die because blood was shed in their place. And we know that all that ultimately pointed to Jesus. So here's, here's how R.C. Sproul very beautifully uh, explains it. He says, when Jesus celebrated his final Passover with his disciples, he departed he departed. So th- this, when what we just read would have been like shocking, like in the moment. They're having Passover, and then Jesus says, this bread is my body. In the middle of a Passover feast, this bread is my body, broken for you. This blood is my blood shed for you. So R.C. says, he departed from the standard liturgy in the middle of 
of the celebration. He added a new meaning to the Passover celebration as he took the unleavened bread, attaching a new significance to it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then after supper, supper had been completed, he took the wine and he said, in effect, I'm attaching a new significance to this element as you celebrate the Passover because this wine is, is my blood, not the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament whose blood was marked on the doorpost, but now this cup is my blood. In essence, Jesus was saying, I am the Passover. I am the Paschal Lamb. I am the one who will be sacrificed for you. It is my blood being marked over the door of your life that you will escape the wrath of God. So he said, from now on, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of your sins. This is the blood of a new covenant. This new covenant that he instituted that very night fulfills the old covenant, giving it the fullest and most meaningful expression. So that, that's the first thing, is that when, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back to the Passover and realizing that all the Bible is about Jesus, and then he helped us understand not really a new meaning, but like this is the meaning that was always there that you didn't see. I'm the perfect spotless lamb that has to die so that your sin can be forgiven. And that, if we can just pause for a second, that is an increasingly hard thing for many Westerners to believe. It is hard for many people to believe that God really is so serious about sin that he says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that it really was necessary for the God of the universe to put himself in harm's way and die so that our sin could be forgiven. And I believe what God wants to whisper to my heart and to your hearts often is that your sin really is that bad. And my sacrifice really is that big and that good. And when we, when we look at the cross, we realize I'm more sinful than I ever dared believe. And we also realize God loves me more than I'd ever dare to hope. Because he put himself, he, he solved the problem of our sin. He said, it's serious, but I've got a solution. And that solution is Jesus. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're, we're thinking back to what it all meant and what Jesus did. He died the death that we deserve to die and took our place so that we might be forgiven. He's our Passover lamb. So Romans 5.8 says, um, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us, okay? So that's the past, and now I want to jump to the future aspect, and then we'll talk about the present aspect, okay? So when we're, we're thinking about the Lord's Supper, we look back to what it represents and where it came from, and then we also look forward because Jesus says, back to Mark 14, at, in verse 24, he says, and this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And then he says this, and you can almost miss this if you're not paying attention. Verse 25 says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, not only do we look back 
and understand that I'm the true meaning of the Passover, that, it, that the whole Bible's been about me and that you need this sacrifice. We also, when we take the bread and the juice, or the bread and the wine, and we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us, we also are proclaiming, and one day Jesus is coming again, and, he's, and we're going to be with him for all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, and, and we're going to sit with him in this thing called the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so it says in Revelation, it says, uh, 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so when we take this Lord's Supper, we're also thinking about to what God has done, but also thinking forward to what he will do. That, that as I think it was C.S. Lewis says, you know, if, if we're living in this world and nothing in this world seems to satisfy us and we go, what's that about? God, that's, that's God who has put that in us so that we would know that we're made for something better than this world. That this world in all its brokenness, that this world in, it, in its mass shootings that seem to keep occurring, that this world in its struggle against racism, that this world in all its sexuality and confusion, sexual confusion, is not the way that it was supposed to be. And, and God did not leave us in that state. Jesus came to fix it. He doesn't want the world to remain this way either. He wants all who would by faith to believe in him to go with him for eternity into a new heaven and a new earth where all things are renewed and, and to sit down for a massive party. I, I don't even know how to describe this party without it almost sounding corny. But, but it's not corny. I mean, really, the, the true future reality for us that are in Christ is that one day we're going to sit down for a massive, unbelievable dinner party with the God who created all things. And with all our, our relatives who have died with the Lord and people that we've lost and, and all our families and those that we love, and we're going to sit and we're just going to have this party. I mean, we're going we're gonna to sit and we're going to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us and his body was broken with us so that all things could be made right. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be filled with joy. It is what our hearts crave and long for. Throughout the Bible, God's been about feasting with his people. If you think back, I, this dawned on me in a brand new way when I was preparing for this sermon, but um, Wayne Grudem says, God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and given them all its abundance to eat except the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. And since there was no sin in that situation when they were there initially, uh, and since God had created them for fellowship with himself and to glorify himself, then every meal that Adam and Eve ate would have been a meal of feasting in the presence of the Lord. So that's how it started out. The people of God 
in, in a perfect place with unbelievable ripe fruit. Man, do you guys love ripe fruit? I've been, I ate the other day, like I was a little bit hungry and it was supper was coming, but I was like, I need something until then. And I ate four nectarines in like two minutes. Like they were perfectly ripe and amazing. And, and when you taste that good, I love a, a perfectly ripe like peach or, or just a really good citrusy orange. Or right now I've got those, those cherry, uh, like those dark cherries with the seeds in them. Those are the good cherries. Not, not maraschino, those are junk. But like the good, the good like tart, like good cherries. And, and, and maybe, maybe when you just taste, if you like me and you love fruit, man, I love fruit, uh, you, you just kind of remember, or maybe a, a, a beautiful steak or like when, whenever we eat food, you just remember, it's all a pointer to God. And so they were feasting in the garden on this amazing produce with God every day. That was the reality for which God had intended humanity until the fall came and ruined it all. And, and what we're doing when we take communion is it's God giving us a foretaste now in the meal, the bread and the juice, a foretaste of the future party that's coming. We were feasting with God. Sin made it where we couldn't feast with God. And then he says, one day you're going to feast with me again. And in the meantime, you get to take this meal together as my people where you're getting just a little bit of a taste of what the feast is about. And so when we take the Lord's, commun- the Lord's Supper or communion every week, like it is in one sense somber because remembering the death of Jesus. And it is another sense celebratory because we're feasting one with another and with God. And that's amazing. And so I want you to keep that rejoicing aspect in mind when we take this meal too. From Genesis, Wayne Grudem again, from Genesis to Revelation, then God's aim has been to bring his people into fellowship with himself. And one of the great joys of experiencing that fellowship is the fact that we can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. That's amazing. Um, Okay, moving on. The Lord's Supper also has a present dimension. So it's, we look back, past, we look forward, future, but then there's also something really amazing that happens in this moment as we participate in this meal. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over what exactly is going on, and I'm not going to go through all the, like, the Catholic and the Lutheran and then the Reformed and then that, like all those understandings, but suffice it to say, we do not believe that this actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus? Because Jesus said a lot of things like that. He said, I'm the door. He said, I'm the vine. We don't really believe Jesus turned into wood. We don't really believe he turned into a vine. We don't really believe that this becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. What we do believe is that he is really here with us in the celebration of this feast in a unique and special way. And we're remembering him and staking all our claims on him in this meal. And if you want to learn more, I'll just say, go read a guy named Wayne Grudem. He's got a book called Systematic Theology. It'll answer most of your burning questions. And he goes over this in a great way in a chapter there. But I'm going to move on from there. But he actually points out in seven things, seven meanings of the Lord's Supper that I just want to briefly touch on you here. These just get me all kinds of giddy and, and they're fun, okay? Uh, number one, Christ's death. The Lord's Supper meaning. You can write these down if you're taking notes, if you're a note person. Uh, seven means the Lord's Supper, Christ's death. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. When the bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. 
And when the cup is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. This is why participating in the Lord's Supper is also a kind of proclamation. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For and often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the first thing is that when we take this meal, we're proclaiming that Jesus has died to save the world. And that's our only hope. And we're proclaiming it one to another when we take this meal. Number two, our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. So we're also saying this. Jesus commanded his disciples, take, eat. This is my body. As we individually reach out and take the cup for ourselves, each one of us is by that action proclaiming, I am taking the benefits of Christ's death for myself. When we do this, we give a symbol of the fact that we participate in or share in the benefits earned for us by the death of Jesus. So we go and we take, we, in our case, we, we take that piece of bread and we, we dip it and we remember this is Jesus for me. I need it and I'm reaching out in faith and taking and saying, I need what this represents. I need Jesus' death on my account. I was the one that crucified him up there. I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I was the one dead in darkness and sin. I was the one that left to my own devices when ended up in a very dark place. Some of us know that. We've chased down the darkness of our hearts and we've seen where it's led us and we've seen the, the destruction that we've brought to our lives. I mean, that's, that's part of what we're even seeing in this drug epidemic in our community is that is that left our own devices, some of us can be so miserable that we will allow ourselves to become addicted to something to try to take the pain away, and yet it never fully takes the pain away. It just drives us deeper and deeper into idolatry and death, and it's sorrowful and awful. And so we've had friends of this congregation, people that were members here, die because of addiction to drugs. And it can happen with not just that. It can happen with alcohol. It can happen with pornography. It can happen with spending out of control. It can happen with so many things that left to our own devices and our own sinfulness, we just go farther than we ever thought we would have gone and end up worse people than we ever thought that we would end up. And that ability, whether we've actually done some of those things or have just contemplated, that, that ability to sin that greatly is in all of us. And so when we take this Lord's Supper, we're taking Jesus' death uh, on our behalf and going, I need this. I need to be saved. Thirdly, spiritual nourishment. Just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper give nourishment to us. But they also picture the fact that there is spiritual nourishment and refreshment that Christ gives to our souls. Indeed, the ceremony that Jesus instituted in his very nature is designed to teach us this. I need you. The same way I get hungry and thirsty, I need and hunger and thirst for Jesus, and I need his nourishment. So this meal is designed to build up our faith as we take it. Fourthly, the unity of believers. Nathan was alluding to this earlier. This is like often passed over, so I want us to really get this one. When, when Christians participate in the Lord's Supper together, they also give a clear sign of their unity with one another. So we're, we're communing together the, the family of God with God. Paul says, 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. When we put these four things together, we begin to realize some of the rich meaning of the Lord's Supper. When I participate, I come into the presence of Christ. I remember that he died for me. I participate in the benefits of his death. I receive spiritual nourishment, and I'm united with all other believers who participate in this supper. And that gives me a great cause for thanksgiving and joy to be found in this meal. Fifthly, some of you need to hear this one this morning meaning the Lord's Supper. When we take this, Jesus is affirming to us that he loves us. The fact that I'm able to participate in the Lord's Supper, indeed that Jesus invites me to come to this meal, is a vivid reminder and visual reassurance that Jesus Christ loves me individually and personally. When I come to the Lord's Supper, I thereby find reassurance again and again of Christ's personal love for me. Maybe you feel pretty beaten down, maybe by your friend group or your family or your workplace, and you're tempted to believe that no one loves you, and maybe and perhaps none of the people around you do really love you. But in this meal, Jesus says to you, I love you. You're mine. I chose you out of this world to be mine. You're deeply valuable because you know me and because I love you. And so when you, when you dip and you eat, be reminded that Jesus loves you extravagantly more than anyone else. Sixthly, Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for me. They're for me. When I come to Christ's invitation to the Lord's Supper, the fact that he has invited me into his presence assures me that he has abundant blessings for me. In this supper, I am actually eating and drinking at a foretaste of the great banquet table of the king. I come to his table as a member of his eternal family. When the Lord welcomes me to his table, he assures me that he will welcome me to all the other blessings on earth and heaven as well, and especially to that great marriage supper of the Lamb at, a, at which a place has been reserved for me. And then lastly, seventhly, I affirm my faith in Christ. As I take the bread and the cup for myself, by my actions I'm proclaiming, I need you, Jesus, and trust you, Lord Jesus, to forgive my sins and to give life and health to my soul. For only by your broken body and shed blood can I be saved. In fact, as I partake in the breaking of the bread when I eat it and the pouring out of the cup when I drink from it, I proclaim again and again that my sins were part of the cause of Jesus' suffering and death. In this way, sorrow, joy, and thanksgiving and deep love for Christ are intermingled when we take the supper. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And I've only touched the surface of everything that this meal represents. And I want us, I want for myself every week to take it well and to be reminded of Jesus' death and to be reminded of the 
future marriage supper of the land at Lamb, and to be reminded of Jesus' deep need, uh, deep love for me, and to be reminded of my deep need for him, and to be reminded of all these things. And so the last kind of question is, how can we take this meal well? And Paul gives um, specific, there's some weird things going on in the church in Corinth, but he gives specific instructions to them about this, and I think that would be helpful for us to look at. So if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, part of what's going on here before we read is um, uh, the church in Corinth, it seems, was, they were having like big like potlucks together <laughs> before the Lord's Supper. Uh, I guess they were called uh, love feasts or like agape feasts. So they're, they're kind of feasting together as the family of God. And then the Lord's Supper was part of that. But what had begun to happen as they were doing this in Corinth, because it was kind of a screwed up, extra screwed up church, you know, it seems. They had lots of problems. Uh, is that some of the people in that church were rich and some were poor. And so some of them were bringing like ribeye to the feast and some of them like could barely eat. And they're all at the feast together and they're kind of separating themselves over into like the rich people over here and the poor people over here. They weren't intermingling as God's people. Not, it didn't seem like the party was really for everybody. It was like some people were throwing down hard and other people were like, we're starving. You know, and so it was a big problem. And Paul says, you're doing that, and then you're taking the Lord's Supper together? That is not how this is supposed to go down. And so he gave him this instruction. Um, beginning in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, there it is, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's a heavy word, and it gets heavier. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home and so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And you can see he's appealing then to these, these love feasts and all that was going on with it. And I don't completely understand the whole situation. But here's what this means at a bare minimum. We, we dare not run to this meal lightly. This scripture, the church has universally said, means that number one, this, this Lord's Supper, and we try to emphasize this every week here, it's only for believers. Because we're the ones who are covered by the blood of Jesus. We, by faith, have placed faith in Jesus, said his blood's for me. And so when we come to the meal, we're celebrating that. 
And so this meal is, is for believers. And it's also for, for believers who are discerning themselves and going, am I, am I prepared to, to take this meal? What does that mean and what does that not mean? It, it doesn't mean that you never take the meal because you go, well, I sinned this week, so I, I'm not worthy. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that, but as you take it, you, you ask yourself, Holy Spirit, is, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Is there any ways in which I'm just trampling over you? Are there any ways in which I'm being disobedient? Do you need to convict my heart of anything? It means we ask ourselves, do I, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that Jesus is my only hope in life and death and that his death really was needed so that I could be saved? And maybe in that moment, I oft, I've said this before, I'll say it again because I think it's, I hope it's helpful. I struggle often with unbelief. I struggle often with doubts. I'm, I'm a pastor. And for whatever reason, I've been through like years now of, of seasons where I feel like the enemy whispers to me, doubt, this isn't really true. This is ridiculous. You don't really need to be forgiven of sin. And then I have to fight that doubt with fresh faith. And I have to say, Holy Spirit, would you help me to believe what I know that I believe? And so sometimes in this moment, I, I just have to, I have to say, God, give me fresh faith and help me to realize that, that I need your nourishment. I need your, your forgiveness. I believe it again afresh and new. I had a guy in a previous church that I was serving in, one of our readings, uh, and I think it's one that we read here. It says, all who are truly sorry for their sins um, and, and believe with all their heart may, may come to the feast. And he goes, I hate that line. It comes from a, a big catechism. Because I, honestly, he left the faith shortly thereafter. He was to the point where he hated it because he knew that he didn't really believe anymore. And so I don't know exactly what it means other than at face value it means that we could even get sick or die by trampling the feast. But Paul just warns us to, to take this seriously and to ask God, do we need to confess anything? And to make sure that we, there's not divisions amongst us when we take the supper. Here's a couple quotations. R.C. Sproul. The point that Paul makes here is that the, the supper is it involves and requires certain discernment. We are to discern what we are doing. We are to come with a proper attitude of humility and repentance. Of course, the point is not to exclude people from the table. Nobody is worthy in the ultimate sense to come and commune with Christ. We who are unworthy in and of ourselves come to commune with Christ because of our need. But we are to come in a spirit of dependence, not arrogantly confessing our sins, and trusting him alone for salvation. If we handle these sacred things in a hypocritical manner, God will not hold us guiltless. That's why we need to explore the significance of this. And then Wayne Grudem says, Jesus here tells us that whenever we come to worship, we should be sure that our relationships with others are right. And if they're not, we should act quickly to make them right and then come to worship God. This admonition ought to be especially true when we come to the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper looks back to what Jesus has done by dying on the cross, by becoming the perfect Passover lamb. It looks forward 
to the feast that we're going to have with God one day in heaven when all things are set back right. And presently, it reminds us of his deep love for us and our deep need for us and how him and, and how we, we take hold of him by faith and we go, this is for me. And it's amazing. And when we take it, we ought to examine ourselves and then take it in faith and with joy. And so that's what we're going to do right now as a church family. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, this meal's not for you. But it can be for you if you place faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time, then it is for you. But we would encourage you, if that's you and you're not yet ready, to, to not take, but to consider do I need to take hold of Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time? The rest of you, if you're a believer and you believe in Jesus and you believe that he's your only hope in life and death, then you're invited to this meal that we're about to partake in. And I want to encourage you especially, don't rush to the table, but examine yourselves, pray, and then let this just be an amazing moment. Read again what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's remember him together now.